Hello, and welcome to The Peer Podcast. I'm Peter DiCaprio, and today my conversation with author, consultant, and lifelong social justice advocate, Howard Ross. Howard is a principal of Udarta Consulting, and previously founded Cook Ross, Inc., which he sold in 2018. He is considered one of the world's seminal thought leaders on identifying and addressing unconscious bias. His most recent book, Our Search for Belonging, How the Need for Connection is Tearing Our Culture Apart, published by Barrett Kohler in 2018, won the Nautilus Gold Award for Social Change and Social Justice. In our conversation, Howard and I discuss some of the ways that we whites perpetuate racism and what we can do to stop it in the midst of international protests sparked by the situation surrounding the murder of George Floyd. As you'll hear in the beginning of our conversation, it was a bit more impromptu than we had planned, owing to the nature of current events. We have a new puppy and he's going to make noise in the other room. So, <laughs> so, so, yeah. mm-hmm. so originally I was really interested in, in um, and it's not that I'm not interested still, in in what you're working on right now, where your thinking has evolved, mm-hmm. how it's evolved from this place of unconscious bias to this understanding and uh, of belonging and how important belonging is for us. But the events of, so we're recording on June 1st, yeah. 2020. Um, it's been four or five days of protests around Derek Chauvin's murder of George Floyd in multiple cities and internationally. While the country and much of the world is on lockdown for the COVID-19 virus. As I've seen you struggle around the administration and some of the, you know, some of the communication and some of the underlying principles that it seems to, that it espouses, mm-hmm. um, what's, what's front of mind for you, especially as a, a white male in, in this work, in the situation as, and if there's any other part of the situation you would add to that description, yeah. I would be interested. Yeah, I mean, I, well, first of all, I, uh, thanks, Peter, and, and um, I'm really, really happy to talk with you. I, I enjoy our conversations a lot. Um, I think, first of all, it's important to say something that I know you know, um, but I think it's important to name anyway, which is that these protests are not about George Floyd. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's interesting that the governor of Minnesota, and, and I think Trump also uh, tweeted this, that, you know, these demonstrations are not about George Floyd, but they're no longer about George Floyd. The truth is they were never about George Floyd. George Floyd was just the, the final spark at this particular time, just like they weren't about Rodney King and they weren't about, you know, um, uh, Ferguson. They were about the fact that at certain times in our history, the persistent violence and um, and um, dehumanization of African-Americans, particularly people of color in general, um, rises to the point where we can no longer tolerate the silence about it. And, um, and this is another case like that. And I think that um, the, it's important for people to realize that what we're experiencing here is rage. It's not anger. Rage is anger and hopelessness. And, and it's that hopelessness under the surface that creates this mindset of people just acting out in, in such extreme ways. People say, you know, well, why would you burn your own neighborhood? You know, why? There was one story about a woman, I, I think uh, President Obama in his piece today talked about a woman who, you know, sa- saw her only grocery store in her neighborhood, which is a food desert burned. And, and, you know, people tend to say, well, why would this happen? You know, why would you do that? You're harming yourself. It's because when people get to that level of frustration and that level of hopelessness and resignation, um, they don't care anymore. It's like, you know, that part of the brain goes away and what's left is the pain and um, and the pain that 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 we refuse to hear as a society constantly over and over again. And so I think I think that that's the case. And this is all about belonging. This is all about the fact that we've created a society in which some people belong when they look like you and I and some people don't. And we we. Um, you know, I think you know that I create the distinction between diversity and inclusion and belonging by saying that, you know, Dr. Cole, our dear friend, says um, diversity is being invited to the dance, belonging is being allowed, I mean, inclusion is being allowed to dance, and I like to say belonging is when you get to choose some of the music. It's not just we're saying, we'll let you be successful in our society. You know, look, aren't we proud of ourselves? Let's pat ourselves in the back. We elected a black president. You know, aren't we proud of ourselves? Michael Jordan makes a lot of money and, you know, this sort of thing without recognizing the anomaly of those folks. Um, and um, and that, that all of that sits on top of a society which basically has said from the very inception of it, uh, 
you're not really fully here. We'll allow you to come in here and, and be our slaves. We'll allow you to come in here and build our railroads. We'll allow you to come in here and be our housekeepers. We'll allow you to come in here and do that. And we'll even you know, beef it up a little bit so it looks like you've got somewhat of an equal life to us. But the truth is, you don't really belong to this culture. And as I hear you describe the role that... So, so we live in, of course, this incredibly diverse world and society. And in some ways, all of these distinctions are meaningless. But in some ways, in terms of the social construction of identity, they're very meaningful. That's right. And in this conversation, we're talking about primarily racially white people, racially black people. Mm -hmm. right? And those roles that you describe are, of course, are only part of it. But a, a white American society owes so much to the contributions of post-African people from the very beginning, from the economic contributions they made, you know, with, with um, you know, stolen labor from them. Their, their genocide, but but music and art, uh, you know, our language, so much about who we are as a national identity comes from Black culture uh, in ways that are, can be obvious at times and ways that are not obvious at times. My, my wife says, you know, the South Bronx should be paved with gold because of how much money has been made from what has come out of the South. Once we think mm -hmm. about jazz, I mean, I'm a, we're both music people. And right. I, I, it's a, but our language, and there's so much about, about that is blackness and black culture that makes white America, white America even. We're like the vanilla ice cream. The thing that gives it the flavors are the black beans mm -hmm. that, are, that are in it. And without those, we aren't who we are. Yeah, and, and, and in fact, it, you know, the truth is it goes even beyond that. I mean, it, you know, the very notion of this country was formed based on this sense of manifest destiny, this sense that, you know, who we are as white Europeans is so divine in some way, and I mean connected to, to grace, to God, is so, we, we're so touched by this divine right to take anything that's in front of us. And, and we actually built this philosophy of manifest destiny and it became part and parcel of our consciousness as a way to justify the rape, murder and theft of the land from its original occupants. And then um, a justification for using other people, like you say, to continue to build everything about this land. I mean, you know, the economy of this country, what would have happened if they didn't have slaves? I mean, how would they have developed the economy of this country without slaves? You know, we know you know, symbolically, probably more than anything else, but nonetheless, it's very real. The White House was built by slaves. You know, all of these these iconic, you know, things that we're looking at in very much the same way as, you know, the whole conversation about the um, the Southern generals' monuments and all this stuff in the monuments and how, you know, people are so completely clueless that how different an experience it must be for an African-American person to walk past that monument than a white person when what that monument is celebrating is somebody who fought a battle to keep me enslaved. And, mm -hmm. and, and we're celebrating that person who fought a battle to keep me enslaved. And so this sense of perspective is something that I think gets especially lost. And, and the place where it gets lost the most is among people who are the most entitled and the most mm -hmm. privileged, because of course, there's the most incentive for us not to pay attention to that history. I, th I think it was Nicole Hannah-Jones that I heard this from, but I don't, I'm not sure. But this idea that black bodies being owned by white people in and of itself was literal wealth in this country. That actually that ownership alone was an economic driver to the early economy of the United States. Sure, slaves were bred like yeah. livestock. Yeah. So and the, and the buying and selling of these human beings was actually part of the wealth that they helped create. It's it's yeah. it's 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 really earth shattering when you think about how much this country is based on that. Yeah, so, you know, I was yeah. I was reading I just I just finished reading Colson Whitehead's book um, The Underground Railroad, which is a novel, which is um, really, really good. I really recommend it. And and you know when you read because it takes place in times of slavery and, and when you read this, you know, you, you think about how the very nature of how human beings were evaluated is driven by this. You know, that the the physical strength of a of a man, the wide hips of a woman making her a better bird thing. You know, yeah. I mean, literally describing people as if they were cattle. 
Mm -hmm. um, because like you said, it is, this is my cash cow, so to speak. You know, this mm -hmm. is, this is exactly um, the mindset that you have of, of, of property. And, you know, we look at um, things like the three fifths, um, you know, contingent in the, in the constitution, and we can look at it for maritime and we say, oh, this is such an appalling thing. We tend to treat it like it was an anomaly as opposed to a window into the very fundamental way that people were viewed mm -hmm. and that that's, that is in our base, it is in our history, it's in our epigenesis, it's, it's there in all of us to a certain degree, both black, white, and of course, you know, other people of color as well, or various different specifics, but the same basic, you know, same basic and idea. What I'm curious about is what, what do you, what do you and I, as two white men on our on our paths what do we have to offer other white people to see as you said this isn't about the death the, the protests aren't simply about the death of george floyd that the floyd the uh, floyd's murder was a, is a catalyst and it would be a it, it would be a level of indifference that is a bit inappropriate for us to not be touched by that in this conversation and talk about it. And it's important that we don't get distracted by this incident because there are systems in place, human beings, there are human systems that we are enacting as white people every day, and I include myself, that have created a situation where legally a black person may not be three fifths of a human being, but if you look at how much money black people are earning compared to white people, if you look at what their health outcomes, those, they don't, in our society, they don't seem to matter. Right. I think that, you know, look, it, it's interesting. I just gave a talk um, a couple of days ago for the Forum for Workplace Inclusion, same talk I actually gave to the National Academy of Sciences about two weeks ago, about what COVID is teaching us about systemic racism, you know. And, and we could just look at that as an example to see exactly what we're talking about. So, you know, I think one of the challenges with our perception is that people in dominant groups, um, by our nature, tend not to see the systemic nature of this as much as people in non-dominant groups, because what we see is what pops up to the surface and gets in our way. We don't have to pay attention in order to survive, so we don't. And that doesn't mean we're mean or nasty necessarily. There are plenty of us who are. Uh, but it also means that we don't have to pay attention to these things. So if you look at just COVID as an example of what you're talking about, the systems that are in play, well, you're right. I mean, economic reality is that the average white family has seven times the acquired wealth of the average black family. Um, the average white person earns more money than the average black person. And so all of, and, and we could go through a hundred other economic markers, you know, own houses or not own houses. And so what that means is I generally live in a poor neighborhood if I'm African-American, I generally have lower income. Um, we know those neighborhoods tend to be more urban. Well, what's in poor, poorer, poorer urban neighborhoods? Older cars that produce more pollution. Where are the bus depots in cities? Always in those neighborhoods. More buses run through those neighborhoods. So the air pollution levels are higher in those parts of the city. Therefore, people's lungs are more compromised. That's just one of 100 things that leads to, to COVID showing up. And, and I think we could take almost any part of American society and and break it down in that way and and again that's just one of a hundred different things that are affecting COVID. but you can see in that one thing you know that this leads to health disparities it leads to higher levels of you know all kinds of other kinds of behavior we know that the stress dealing with low income leads to all kinds of behavior more smoking you know poor eating habits all that stuff directly related to stress so so you know but what we tend to do um, that is, those of us who are in the dominant part of this culture as a whole tend to do is we tend to look at those behaviors, first of all, as uh, specific uh, incidents like like the George Floyd incident. You know, oh, well, yeah, it's really sad what happened to George Floyd. Yeah, but what about the other hundreds of people who this has happened to? And what about the ones who haven't even come to the level of people dying so we don't hear about them? You know, there, because for every George Floyd who dies, there are 100 people or 200 people or 500 people who are treated by the police in ways that that are inappropriate, you know, all that. And to stuff. interrupt you and that weren't yeah. filmed. That That's weren't, right. That happened not that to be filmed. were not right. filmed quite so, so clearly for us to see. Yeah, we know, for example, studies have shown, studies of bias have shown that police officers put their hands on black 
um, um, black people 25% more. They put handcuffs on black people 20% more. They throw them down on the ground, you know, 25% more. I mean, just one thing after another that leads to this generalized attitude, which is one person is a citizen who I have to interrelate with. The other person is something else that I need to control. So you've worked with police. Yes. You've worked with police departments, quite a few. So what's your goal when you work with police departments? Well, I mean, I think that the first thing in working with police departments is to recognize, um, and and I think it's it's, it's only fair to have um, some sort of compassionate empathy for the role that they play in this, which is that they're asked to go out there and put their lives on the line to protect the population. Um, And if they make a mistake, um, they become the next national pariah. So, I mean, I think anybody who, who doesn't take into account the difficulty of what it is to be a police officer, I think is not even so much being unfair, but it's just not a very accurate portrayal of the dynamic that's in play. Um, and so, you know, I start usually by making sure that people know that, you know, I'm sensitive to that because, uh, because if you don't, then police officers, it's like, you know, easy for you to say all this. You're not out there with your life on the line worrying about a split second decision. In some cases, a decision, you know, that could impact life or death that has to be made literally in a split second. Um, and then and then um, and then to talk with him about understanding how the mind makes these decisions so they can understand that even if they're in the circumstance um, where they had the right attitudes and beliefs <clears throat> that something else can take over. And and boy, did we ever see an example of this with this woman, Amy Cooper. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, here's this woman who's a liberal by, by what standard people say, gets in this moment where she panics and what happens? She falls right back into the training <clears throat> in her life, which could have come directly from the Klan, which is how do we weaponize this person's blackness? Well, I'm going to call them. I'm going to call them and tell them that a black man is threatening me. It's like the weaponization of that at the moment was so striking um, that that that's where she immediately went back to. You know, reminded me a little bit of what, the thing that happened with Michael Richards a number of years ago, the comedian, mm-hmm. if you remember, where you know he this guy was heckling him and he responded, and and Richards afterwards was like, I have no idea where that came from, and and people thought, well, he's just bullshitting, but the, but the truth is he probably did at the moment. It's this, these deep these deep patterning, and I know Peter, that you and I have talked about this, that we've both had examples of those feelings come up. It's like, where the hell did that come from? Mm-hmm. Now, you know. Hopefully, we've done a little bit more work on it, so we can derail those to some degree. But, but I don't. I certainly don't, you know, live in any illusion that there aren't times when supremacy comes into my decision making without my realizing it or without my wanting it to be there. Just because growing up in the society, that's what we're taught to do. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that to effectively intervene on my own biases and internalized racial superiority, as mm-hmm. as I see it, that's the bias we're talking about. Yes. I actually have to be willing to not give myself the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. And in this ironic way, I have That's to right. be willing to, if I want to be a moral person, I have to be willing to understand that I may not act morally all the time and not even be aware of it. Yeah. And, <laughs> and also, of course, to know how little our intention really matters. Mm. That whether that that we can want to be the best person in the world, mm-hmm. you know, we can give, we can have our Black Lives Matter signs up, and we can, you know, give money to all the right causes, and we can even be out there protesting, and still, this trigger is in us because it's been trained to be in us, yeah. and it's been trained also to be inside of African Americans to feel less than, mm-hmm. um, and and in fact, beaten out of them if they were too quote, uppity, that was the language that was used when I was younger, you know, mm-hmm. um, if they show too much pride or too much self-confidence, um, we're going to take them down a peg because that doesn't work in the system either. You see, the system only works if I feel better than, but also if you feel less than, because it's too difficult to dominate somebody who also feels good about themselves. It only works if you can convince them that they're less than so that they can not challenge your authority. So, you know, one of the things I think is really critical to be an effective white person is to to be working with our fellow white people right mm-hmm. to be doing that work because that's so if we're if we're combating racism racism is a is is an issue that resides in white people like anti-black racism I, resides in white people and that's where the work is so we we talked, we talked a little bit about how we 
can be aware of and intervene for ourselves. And, and I urge anybody listening to this to, to, to read Howard's work, to read your work about unconscious bias and the tools that you recommend. How do we work with other white people? Michael Richards, and I've, I've forgotten the name of the, the person, the woman with the dog in Central Park. Amy Cooper. Amy Cooper. Thank yeah. you, Howard. Mm -hmm. So Amy Cooper lost her job. She literally, she, she had her dog taken away. Uh, Trevor Noah's commentary about the discomfort about people getting in some ways more upset about her dog than about her other behavior mm -hmm. was, was, was very touching. This thing we do is, as well-intentioned white people, we either deny that there's any racial component or any racial thing happening, or we become obliterated by it. And if we're going to move forward as people, there has to be another choice for us. Like if, if we're going to accept that we make mistakes, there, there has to be a way to come back from that. And it has to be something that doesn't perpetuate what we're doing on towards people of color. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think, I, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I think that, I think some of that has to come from, from us. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'd be curious if you have any any thoughts or recommendations. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I, look, I think that um, uh, you know Robin D'Angelo's work on on white fragility really touches on on a lot of this in, in a very powerful way. And, and um, you know, I think that what Robin's pointing to is you know one of the challenges that we have is that um, we can turn away. You know, it's easy enough to say, "Oh, isn't that terrible? Let's turn the station off and watch something else." Um, you know, I am. Um, I shared on Facebook uh, yesterday, I think you, you may have even seen it, I forget, but the story of this, this artist that I met back in 1988, her name was Alice Lakahana, and um, she was a Holocaust survivor, quite remarkable woman who, um, who uh, when she was 14 years old in Bergen-Belsen, conducted Shabbat services in the, in the latrines for the children so they wouldn't forget their heritage at the risk of death, obviously, as a, as a young teenager, eventually was freed from the camps after being on the long march, the long march, they, they walked all the prisoners back from the Russian lines to, you know, and they would go through these towns. And, and I met her and we became friends. And, and, um, and she said to me at one point, she said, the most striking thing to me, maybe one of the most horrible things I experienced in the whole time was when we were being marched through these camps and people were dying, of course, on this march, these death marches. She said, we would see people close their windows as we would go through these villages. It's like, you know, we don't want to look at this. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think that there is that same quality now. I think it's much easier for people to, to see these um, sort of cartoon uh, depictions of people. Well, they're the looters. You know, mm -hmm. there are the troublemakers. There are this, as opposed to really understanding the pain that's there. Mm. Um, because uh, because if we really understand the pain, we can't help but take that in to some degree and feel somewhat responsible for that, not personally responsible, but that people like us and people in our family and people in our heritage and that the land that we're living on was built by and all of those kinds of things. And I, I think this is one of the challenges of guilt, of course. Guilt is a pretty, um, a, a pretty contracting emotion. It, it causes us to, to withdraw as opposed to connect. Or if we do, with, if we do connect, after guilt is usually in a backlash kind of reaction where we, we get angry at the person who sourced the guilt. Um, and I think that's one of, the, one of the real challenges we have is that, you know, how, how can we deal with this from the standpoint of creating a sense of responsibility that we all have a role to play in fixing this, um, but not necessarily savaging people to the point where they feel like in order to be engaged, I have to feel like shit about myself. Because yeah. that's, not, that's not going to empower people into action. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not suggesting this to protect people. I'm just saying what gets people into action. And, and I think that that's, that's the real challenge is sometimes, sometimes it makes us feel good to have, make people feel bad because, you know, people like you did this, therefore I want you to feel bad about that. But the question is ultimately what moves us into action. It's obvious and very natural for us to want to step away from or, or deny this, the people who are the targets of racism and their suffering because of the guilt that it might create in us. And um, in my experience, it's also very human of us to project all of 
the 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 ills of racism onto this small subset of white people who are the bad white people right, right? and when i know when when we whites come together to do this work around race there's often a lot of kind of policing and a lot of a lot of projecting that we whites can do around oh i'm i'm one of the good white people and though there are certain bad white people do you have any thoughts about moving into a different paradigm for that like what what the what the entry you bring up a really good point. I mean, I think that, that if we look at it, you know, there, there is a part of us, I think, that um, uh, there's, a, there's a sort of righteousness that it allows us when we can, we can talk about those other white people who are bad. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think that, you know, I feel a little bit that sometimes in some of the, some of the people we've talked about who are, who are sort of white anti-racism activists who... You know, there's sometimes when you feel like, you know, there's there's a little bit of an ego boost that I get because I'm out here trashing other white people. It gives me a little bit more credibility. Mm-hmm. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's like mm-hmm. there's a, there's a, there's a, something beyond just dealing with the issue. And um, and and sometimes it, it often comes from a good place, which is I want to be sure, you know, I'm not one of those kind of white people. But mm-hmm. they, but what it misses is that um, that white experience um, is deeply in all of us and the um, that sense of privilege and the mm-hmm. sense of entitlement and even in feeling like that we want our voices to be heard. You know, I have very mixed feelings often about speaking out on issues of race because there's part of me that feels like it's really important um, to, to demonstrate that this isn't only a concern among people of color, that it's a concern that everybody should have. And I know that as somebody who comes from a Jewish background, and I know that you know what happened to my family and the history of my own family, as well as the family of millions of others, um, that I wished a lot more Germans had spoken out and I wished a lot more people in Eastern Europe had spoken out and refused to participate. So I do think that there's value in that and I don't want to diminish that. But there's also um, in allyship a, uh, a need to listen more and to speak less at times. Mm-hmm. And, and I think both, dependent upon the situation, they're both there and finding which is the right time to speak and which is the right time to listen can sometimes be a tricky thing. So mm-hmm. I think we have to continue. I think what we all have to do is to continue to be in that inquiry all the time. And, and we also have to develop the kind of relationships with people around us who we care about, who represent other identity groups. Um, because we could have the same conversation about gender, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, We could have the same conversation about sexual orientation. Um, or even disability, or any number of these other issues. You know, the disability they, community they have this saying: it's, it's that something like "not for us, but with us." You know, in other words, don't don't mm-hmm. come in like the savior. You know, stand stand side by side with us, yes, but don't come in like the savior. And I think, you know, so often, um, even even with the best of intentions, I know that I've slipped into that sort of savior mode. I'm here, you know, the answer without even realizing that how much my whiteness and my maleness gives me mm-hmm. the the stature to do that. Um, now, sometimes that means using privilege in a constructive way, and sometimes it means it just makes me feel good, and I have to be constantly in the inquiry of which which is which. But I do think that we have to understand this is not a bad white person problem. This is a, a, a societal problem. This is a problem that is built into the pattern of, um, of what it is to be white in our society and how we're raised to be white in our society and how other people are raised juxtaposed against our being white in the society. And, um, and we have to continue to learn about that and to look at how it impacts and not just learn about it. Like, isn't that interesting? Like going to a black history class, but also to look at how has that impacted me? Mm-hmm. Um, how has it shown up in my life? I, I think you've probably heard me tell this story at one point or another, but I remember about that's probably you know close to 10 years ago now. Um, and I was going downtown, and I lived in Silver. At the time, I was living in Silver Spring, which is just a, a bedroom suburb of DC, and, as you know. And, and you go right down 16th Street to get into the city, which is goes right to the White House, about 20, 30 minute drive. And you go through a part of DC that's that's sometimes called the Gold Coast. Northwest Washington is predominantly higher income community, um, very safe, relatively. Um, and, and more white than most parts of Washington, D.C., which is, of course, has a very uh, heavy African-American population as well. And so it was a beautiful day. I had a convertible, so my top was down, and, and it was a beautiful spring day, and I'm driving down, and I stop at a stoplight, and this young African-American man walks in front of me across the street, and he's got a loose jeans and, you know, baggy shirt, and, you know, the, you get the picture. And, and the best way I can say it is my hand blocked the door. 
<laughs> and as soon as, and the reason I say that, that pesky hand, the reason I say that I'm not, I'm not avoiding responsibility, but the reason yeah. I say it that way is because the top was down at my convertible. It provided me no safety to lock the door. <laughs> it was clearly a, 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 a reflective, unconscious, you know, trigger that happened. Mm. And, and the door clicked and he heard it. He was only 10 feet away from the car, mm. from the car. And he stops right in the middle of the street. He turns around and looks at me. And I immediately, even before he turned around and said, where did that come from? And then I looked up, and of course, what was present for me at that point was embarrassment, shame, and guilt. And so I immediately said to him, dude, I'm sorry, you know. And he thanked me with a particular digit of his hand and kept walking, you know. <laughs> and I sat there for long enough so the people behind me honked mm. to get me to move again, mm -hmm. just feeling this guilt and shame that came in. Now, mm -hmm. it, this wasn't a directed activity. It wasn't an activity that I did intentionally. Like I said, it didn't even make any rational sense to lock the door of a convertible with the top down, you know. But but I think it was just a window into how deeply embedded in us these patterns of behavior are and these belief systems and these reaction patterns are. And and I think that it's that kind of exploration, you're turning that flashlight on ourselves that we need to be willing to do, um, that we're not required to do to be in this society. You know, black folks need to need to in order to be successful in society, they need to pay attention to that stuff. They have to look at how is their behavior going to show up? You know, how is their syntax of language going to show up? How is the way they dress? How they wear their hair? You know, all of this stuff. How is this going to impact my being able to be successful, take care of my family, survive in the case of interactions with police officers with with um, inside of this body that I've been given? And I think that that's a day to day lived experience that um, white people can't possibly understand intuitively. We have to we have to be exposed to it and hear about it. And even when we've heard about it a million times, we don't understand it at a deeper level. You know, I've had four sons. I've never had to sit down with any one of them when they were getting their driver's license and having a driving while white conversation with them to, mm. to make sure that they know if a police officer stops them, where to keep their hands at all times and how to that you should ask permission before you go to the uh, compartment to get that that registration card or or that you should make eye contact, but not too much eye contact. And, you know, I mean, because. Every black parent I know who has a teenage child at this point, especially a teenage son, um, experiences fear every time they go out or almost every time they go out. And if they're five minutes or 10 minutes late coming home, it's like, oh, my God, what might have happened? And, and that's something that I never had to experience with my kids. You know, so so these are the these are the kinds of things that I think make it so hard for us to understand because our lived experience is so different. Yes. Again, so many, yeah. so <laughs> many things I want to uh, that. I want to touch on, but I think one thing that in terms of, you know, our goal or my goal, at least of building on the skill set of our fellow white people to become more aware and aware of the, the workings of internalized racial superiority in ourselves, you know, that list that you went through that black people have to think about how I dress, how I, I don't recall them, but how I wear my hair mm -hmm. and all that, that we as white people, when we're interacting with people of color and with black people, we could actually start asking ourselves, how does the way that person is wearing their hair impact the way I'm seeing them? Yeah. What are my associations with the way that person is dressed? Right? Yes. How do I see, where have I seen that, that dress before? What judgments am I making about, about the way they're dressed? What judgments am I making about whether they were on time or not? I mean, the one, the one thing about racial stereotypes that we can leverage here is we actually have a list of potential biases that we can use, right? And if you think of, think of your most racist uncle and the list that that, that bad white person right, would, would have regarding some, a member of a different group and compare how you're perceiving people of a different group along along those that along those lines. That's. I also. But of think, course, yeah. but of course, one of the real challenges, Peter, is that um, the people who are willing to engage in that kind of inquiry have already transcended to some degree the trap of of. Um, you know, I almost said imperialism, and there is a certain sense of imperialism and colonialism in it too, mm -hmm. which you know it's a whole other level of conversation. But um, what we've already, you know, you've already said something's wrong that I have a responsibility to have some say about, and that's what leads you to have those kinds of inquiry. But, but of course, most people are completely clueless to that. I mean, I had a conversation uh, 
private Facebook conversation with a guy you know who's he's a, he's a good decent guy and he he really does try to do the right thing but completely you know about this whole thing about violence and how you know how the protests were violent and it's like well wait a second now if the protests are violent the same guy was saying you can't blame all police officers for the actions of a few but it's okay to blame all the protesters on the actions of a few you know and and it's just the the blindness to it is staggering um, and especially what we see it in ourselves and you've you've actually brought me to a question that I've had that I, I wanted to share with you around this conversation of so I experience your work and I experience you as someone again who you work through connection with other people mm -hmm. you work through a this sense of respect that you have for people that 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 I've experienced and I'm curious how you characterize the phenomenon of the current administration and the the attitudes and the the philosophies that underpin that seem to underpin this administration and how do you connect with people around that yeah look it's it, i tell you the truth it's it gets harder and harder all the time you know i mean as you know i really tried um, at the beginning to i mean I, i've always found donald trump problematic and loathsome. I'm not going to pretend that I, you know, I mean, I wrote a blog two years before he ran for president about, um, about him. And, and, uh, um, and so there was a personal issue about him. But I think that the bigger issue is how does somebody who clearly is a white supremacist get elected president and be continuously supported by, you know, 40%, 43%, I guess is the number today, or 42% of the country, when there's no um, subtlety to his white supremacy. Um, you know, his comments about, you know, the, the whole thing with Colin Kaepernick, of course, is, is now in such bold relief as we tell people how upset they are that we're going violent and how they should, they should rely on peaceful protest. But meanwhile, Colin Kaepernick does something as peaceful as just bending, sitting, taking a knee and gets driven out of his career and called the son of a bitch by the president of the United States. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, that's, it's just, um, you know, the, the hypocrisy in it is, is extraordinary. And, and again, yesterday, Trump's tweets about how MAGA people like the blacks. You know, even in his language, you hear it. He sees this as a collective group of people. Um, you know, there's a phenomenon in psychology that they call the outgrowth homogeneity effect. And, um, and could you uh, just for sound purposes, could you say that again? What's sure. the name? of it's, it's called the outgroup homogeneity effect. I think George Quattrone was the psychologist who came up with the concept. But the idea being that when you see yourself as separated from another group, when you don't see them as you, you have a tendency to see them as all the same. And if we look at historical examples of genocide, you know, we can see this, you know, to the Nazis, a Jew was a Jew um, to to our to the settlers, this country. The only good Indian is a dead Indian. I mean, you can hear that. They're all the same. You know, the, everybody everybody in that group is all the same. We, of course, are very different. And you and I have had the experience in workshop situations where you'll, you know, we used to do this these fishbowl exercises where we'd have different groups get in the center talk about their experience. And we'd usually start with, uh, with white women. And they invariably would say, Oh no, we don't see ourselves as white women. We see ourselves as women. And then, and then men of color would come in and they had no, usually no challenge seeing their identity and then women of color would come in and they would invariably start by saying oh yeah they're white women <laughs> they could <laughs> they could see the difference because mm -hmm. they they had this dude survive and then finally white men would come in and invariably what happened to white men would come and said we don't see ourselves as a group we just mm. see different people around a group because mm. of course within our own group we see every little difference but within that group everybody appears to be the same now we know that there's vast differences among any group, but nonetheless, that's the way it occurs. And so, so I think that that's a, that's a, a piece of this that goes on. And so we see the protesters out there. Um, and if we're not part and parcel of the people who that's representing, we just see them as a mass. And if things are burning, the protesters are burning things in the same sense as, you know, uh, as folks of color or people on the other side might look at white folks and say, well, if, if the, the Klan or one of these police officers do something that's the way white people act and, and it is the nature of on an individual basis how we relate to people so I, I do have a concern that i do the same thing with conservatives mm -hmm. sure and my concern is that i think that there are some some real crises 
that conservative thinkers, believers, people are going through right now that they're not aware of. And I think that there's a lot of evidence for a kind of obliteration of rationality. Yeah, very much so. I think, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. I mean, um, I said, well, the, the irony is that, of course, that there's nothing conservative about Donald Trump. I mean, he, 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 some of the policies as he's decided at this stage of his life to forward because it forwarded his agenda are conservative philosophies. But he's clearly a demagogue. I mean, this is this is the nature of demagoguery that we're seeing in front of us. But, you know, you were asking before and I kind of got sidetracked about, you know, so in the early stages, I went out and I talked to a lot of these folks. And my belief was, you know, you could vote for Donald Trump without necessarily being a supporter of his. And, and in fact, what I found when I interviewed over 100 people who voted for Trump um, very much that way, most of them, actually, a majority said that they voted more against Clinton than they did for Trump or they voted for Trump. They held their nose and voted for Trump because of abortion or because of guns or well, some issue or something like that. But there were not very many full-throated supporters. But the interesting thing is that as time has gone on, it's harder and harder to have those conversations because there's more and more evidence of exactly who he is. And in order to justify that, and, and, and you know, I think you know there's this psychological phenomenon they sometimes call the backfire effect, that the more difficult it is to justify supporting somebody and the more you're kind of have people come at you for doing that, um, the more you dig in and dig the point of view. And I had a conversation recently with, with somebody who I've known for more than 20 years. Um, and at some point I said, so, you know, so aren't you being a good German? And he got really frustrated. He said, oh, my God, are you calling me a Nazi? And I said, no, I'm not calling you a Nazi. Specifically, I'm not calling you a Nazi. I said, good Germans were not Nazis. They were people who allowed the Nazis to do what they were doing and didn't act, mm. you know. And I said, uh, you know, you, you say, well, he's this or he's that or he's that, but, but, you know, he's still taking care of the stock market or he's still, you know, doing certain things I believe in. Well, you know, that's unacceptable. I mean, at some point we have to say, okay, we've seen who this man is and we've seen the disruption and the destruction that he's brought around um, in, in virtually every area, whether it's, you know, the destruction of the environment or the racist things that he's done and supported or, you know, how badly he's mismanaged COVID or all this kind of stuff. And if you could sit back and say, well, yeah, but, you know, Hillary had her emails. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, and, and so it's, I do find that it's more difficult now because mm -hmm. we've gotten more and more polarized. And some of that is because that's his intention. I mean, his intention is separate, you know, is dividing conflict. And I don't want to, you know, I don't think it, it, you know, we could do this, but it doesn't make, it's not a lot of value in going into polemic against Trump. But I think that the bigger issue here is, um, is that it's gotten to the point where those differences, I mean, you've heard me say it's, we've gone from a bell curve to a dumb bell curve where everything's on mm -hmm. the end and nothing's in the middle. And I mm -hmm. think that, that that's gotten more and more so even in the last three years, mm -hmm. because it's gotten to the point where, you know, let's say you did have issue with somebody's um, immigration stance, you know, like that's a valid concern. We could talk about what is the best way to handle immigration in this country. And, you know, I mean, we haven't done a great job of doing it historically and, it's an inquiry we should be in, right? Um, but in the past, you and I might have a difference of opinion about that, but we would agree on gun rights, and we might disagree mm -hmm. on civil rights, but we might agree on foreign policy, and we agree on this, and we disagree on that, because we're very issue-oriented. And, and for the most part, um, you know, you'd say to a guy, well, you know, I know you're a good guy, but we happen to disagree about immigration. But now we've moved to a different level because it's no longer about issues. It's now about identity. It's now you're one of those people and I'm one of these people. And so and, and so this cancel out culture that we've got now where, you know, if you say the wrong thing on the liberal or progressive side, I mean, look, you look what's happening within the, the Democratic Party right now, you know, because because Biden beat Bernie, there's some Bernie people who are actively going out and trying to find every little thing they can find that's bad about Biden. And some, and it's not hard to find in a, in a 50 year career, you know, find everything that we can do to undermine Biden, not because I'm thinking what's the big picture here, but because they beat us and I'm pissed about it. So, and so they're no longer good, you know, um, and it's um, Bernie was the only the only honest man, that's right. the only that, honest man there. And, yeah. and you know, I, I, you know, I like Bernie, so it's not mm -hmm. about that, but it's just this this kind of all my way or the highway philosophy um, that ends up with people, you know, on the left ends up with people voting for Jill Stein and putting Trump into the White House, you know. So um, so the irrationality in it is something that I think we don't we often don't understand. And, um, and because we continue to fall back on the false notion that human beings are rational. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I don't, I don't say that as a punchline, though. It's true. Yeah. We are not. We're rationalizing. We're not yeah. rational. 
capable of some rationality yeah. some of the time. I do think there are ways in which this irrationality is coming from a kind of a racial white supremacist panic around the first black president. Mm -hmm. And that white America, along all of the spectrum of, of, of people, wherever they are in terms of thinking how we should approach diversity, white America was, was rocked by that in ways that I, that I think are showing up now in the, in the Trump administration. I mean, the, the Republican Party has been using the Southern strategy since Nixon, since the first president after the Democrats passed the uh, Civil Rights Act. That's right. So this idea of, of, of race, it's always been present in American politics and racism's always been present in American politics. And now it's, it's present in, in Republican politics in particular. Yeah. Well, and, and, and of course, you know, Linda Johnson famously said when he signed the Civil Rights Act that we've, we've lost the South for a gener at least a generation. Yeah. You know, um, it was not surprising that that happened. Um, it was one of the one of the, you know, sort of the um, disingenuous charges that people will make. Sometimes people from the right will make, well, you know, it's a, the Democrats were the party of the Klan and Democrats were the party of segregation in the South, all of which is true, except that all of those people switched to be Republicans in, yeah. in the 60s and 70s. Right. So, you know, the, you know, it was the, the people who did that were Democrats and it became Republicans because the, the Republican Party, I think I think it was Al Sharpton who said that not every racist is a Republican, not every Republican is a racist, but all racists are Republicans. <laughs> you know? I don't know if it's quite that universal, but um, but I do think that there there's the truth to that and, and that that became sort of the party of racism, the party, um, that, that was when that happened. Because before that you had... You know, you had Northerners like Nelson Rockefeller, famously, or even George Romney, Mitt Romney's dad, who, was, who were pretty supportive of civil rights, you know, at least relatively. Um, and, you know, that just began to divide. And, of course, it's continued to get gotten to the point now where it's so extreme that even Ronald Reagan, if he were here today, would seem like a rhino to a lot of people on, yeah. on the right. And, and I want to, and, and I don't think you would disagree particularly with this, but I do want to, I just want to be clear, too, that, I think that racism is is present in all American politics. I think mm -hmm. that in, it's present, like internalized racial superiority is present in enough white people uh, to, to be fundamentally universal in us, yeah. in our society. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, in a sane world, we would be dealing with the more aversive racism of progressives, right? I mean, I don't know that this is an ideal world, but in a world that was perhaps a bit more sane, we would be dealing with that kind of that kind of unconscious aversive racism that frankly that the Hillary Clinton administration would have would have would have embodied in some ways. Well well I think this is what um, you know Van Jones did a very powerful piece the other day, just a quick four and a half minute piece or something in which he was saying, you know, what's really clear is that you know, he said, I'm not so worried about it's not that I'm not worried about it, but he said we look at the Klan and everything else, but he said he said you know, what we saw in Amy Cooper was the challenge that white liberals carried this racism too. You know, this was a woman who saw herself, who sees herself as a progressive and a liberal. And, and, um, and, and it was in her, it's in me when that guy walks in front of the car, you know, and it's in, and it's even in because of, because of the, um, the internalization of this is even in some black folks who, mm -hmm. who evaluate black folks in that way. I mean, it's, it's, it's the system is designed, um, to position black people as less than. The entire system is designed to position people as less than. And and there are all kinds of protective mechanisms that are put in place to make sure that happens. And so black parents teach their kids to, you know, keep it down a little bit because you don't want to piss off the white guys and you know, and, and this kind of stuff. And so it gets transferred from generation to generation until there's this, you know, this this seething anger underneath, you know, that that, you know, brilliant um, quote by the, the Brilliant James Baldwin. I mean, I think sometimes that you could take anything James 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 Baldwin hiccup brilliance, but in mm -hmm. any case, where he said that to be black in America is to be living with a constant state of rage, yeah. um, and I think that that's I think that that's true, and I think that th this is getting back to the beginning of our conversation. This is where I think the Floyd incident is teaching us is that um, you know this is this these the governor was right. These these demonstrations are not about George Floyd. They're sparked by George Floyd, just like. Just like if you take a match and toss it into a barn full of hay, 
Um, you know, the match was what started the fire, but the fire was just waiting to happen. All it needed was that spark. And, and it's all the material that's burning that we need to pay attention to. And I think that, you know, as we conclude our short time we've had here, I think that um, as white people, um, we need to be responsible for starting by doing the inner work necessary to understand the racism that's in us. And, and, and I think that, that we're best served doing that without casticating and flagellating ourselves. I mean, that doesn't mean ignoring it either. I think people have a misnomer. I often run into people who have a misnomer about unconscious bias. They say, oh, well, you're letting people off the hook because you're saying it's unconscious. That's not the point. The point is that these things are so deeply embedded in us that we don't see. And if we can get people to understand that, if we can get people to understand that we don't even, understand, we don't even know what our biases are, then we can hopefully get them to turn their direction inward Mm -hmm. um, and say, okay, what are mine? Because I don't want to be acting some way inconsistent with my values. If I say that I believe in equal rights for people, I don't want to pick up my phone as soon as I'm feeling scared and say, I've got a black guy here who's threatening me and my dog. You know, I want to learn to stop that behavior, even if it's the impulse to have that behavior. And, and that's the work that we need to do, I think, as part of this society, as well as supporting policies and putting nice pictures and quotes on our Facebook walls. You're reminding me of a conversation I had recently with a, a colleague of mine I was sharing with him the approach that I've really learned working with you and working working with with the, the model that you've created and how it's very value neutral and it's very it's very much it's very much about allowing people to have the space to see what's going on underneath. And a lot of folks in this work think that we have to make it hurt a bit for it to be valid. Mm -hmm. And I could, and my friend and I were talking about that. And, you know, the realization I had about the work in the moment is if they're doing it right, don't worry, it's going to hurt. Yeah. Right. They're going to feel that guilt. They're going to, they're going to feel that shame That's about right. this stuff eventually. Right. We don't, we need to invite them into that conversation. And every day I need to invite myself to see my perspective and how it's impacted by my experience and kind of the white supremacy that we that we've moved through in our society um but it's absolutely right and and you know and, and then people say well then the whiffum comes up and i think mm. this is important for us to recognize what's too. what's in it what's for in me? it for me yeah. right you know um because the truth is that the system as it exists right now is designed to serve people like you and i mm -hmm. so what the kind of work that we're talking about calls from us is that we actually act in ways that are inconsistent with our own self-interest. Now, people say, well, why would people do that? But people act in ways that are inconsistent with their own self-interest all the time. You know, we've got, we've got a political leader right now, a president of the United States, who was elected by a lot of people who are in jobs, you know, lower-level blue-collar jobs, um, that he has no interest in supporting. I mean, he says the right things about it, but every position he takes is for the benefit of people like him, you know, yeah. the billionaire class. And yet, and yet people vote for him and put him in office. And we've seen this happen year after year, that people vote against their campaign. But one of the, but one of the reasons for that is because like you said, there's such, there's at some level, on a macro level, there's such a, a little bit of difference between the Democrat and Republican parties on the whole, because both support the oligarchy, both support mm -hmm. this notion that we're going to focus towards wealthy people. You know, the very political system is designed and structured to make people with wealth have more influence because there's so much money in the political system now that um, that if you if you don't get big money to give you, I mean, yes, Bernie did an amazing job of building his campaign without it, but let's say one of the reasons that was so cool for a lot of people was because it's such an anomaly, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I mean, and this is what we do. It's, it's like, well, Barack Obama got elected president, so racism's dead in this country. No, the reason it's a big deal that Barack Obama got elected was because he did it despite racism. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if Barack Obama was white, he might have gotten 60% of the vote. He was such an incandescent, you know, mm -hmm. and charismatic leader. But, but of course, um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a hard thing for people to get. This, this idea that the system's set up to benefit people that look like you and me, I think there's, there's some truth in that. Like, I think that's true. And... It's, it's actual purpose is to keep people that look like you and me separate from people who look like Barack Obama yep. so that, as George Carlin would call them, the owners of this country, yes. the people with the real money. It keeps it separates us. And, and, and I think we see that in the, in the way you describe the folks who voted for Trump, who seem to have voted outside of their best interests, though I know there are critiques of that that yep. view that, that they they know what their interests are and that they're that 
but that are doing they're worse off economically than they might be under more liberal policies mm -hmm. because of this racial piece. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that that's one of the things we whites can learn. And, you know, the white the white fragility work that you mentioned earlier talks about that quite a bit, that mm -hmm. there's a lot there's a lot to be gained by starting to see ourselves as racially white and understanding what that means. Yeah. And this has been the, the, the challenge. And, you know, um, Robin's work is great work. And Judith Katz has done some wonderful work around white awareness for years and years and years. Um, and uh, there are a lot of other people who are doing it. And I know that, you know, some of the best work that I ever did in my life um, relative to my own shifting awareness and transforming the way I looked at these issues. Not that I in any way am a finished product, by the way, because it's all it's an ongoing thing. But but was was that work and what did it mean really understanding what it was to be a white man? And, and you know, some of my early friends and teachers who were of color when mm -hmm. I would be you know, really interested in, you know, in doing the right thing would say, well, start by learning yourself, start by seeing how this affected you. And I think that that's ultimately the message that I would give to people who are listening to us who really do want to evolve in this conversation is start by learning the history, start by, you know, um, reading and learning and listening to people who are out there like Judith and, you know, Tim Wise and Robin and, you know, others of us who have written and just, you know, absorb and, and really ask the questions and then engage with people who are willing to be honest with you and, and, and have a conversation and say, where does entitlement and privilege show up in my presentation? And have there been times when you've experienced that with me and I really would like to hear it. And, um, uh, but, uh, you know, but, th but then to recognize that that can only be an invitation because it's not their job to educate us, even though to a certain degree, we can never really learn without having those engagements. So, so it's a sort of a fine line sometimes, but I think it's when we're active versus passive. I think when we're actively trying to learn and we say, hey, listen, I've been thinking about some things and if you're willing, I'd love to bounce this off of you and get your impression as a person of color. So what I'm saying, that's very different than saying, well, t tell me what you need. You know, you hear this a lot. Well, just tell me what you want. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, okay, I know it's bad, I get it. And, and a lot of this comes from the, that sense of, of uh, fragility and, and fear, which is, you know, I, if I try to make this up myself, I know I'll screw it up. So just tell me what to do and I'll do it. I hear that from a lot of corporate leaders, you know, tell me what to do and I'll do it. Well, that, that's not enough. I mean, we've got to, you know, yes, actions matter and, and doing the right thing matters. And I don't want to say it's that we don't want to do those things. But beyond that, we also have to get a deeper understanding. And, and, and that means, you know, inviting your white male leaders or white, white general leaders into your um, business resource group or, or employee resource group if you're in an organization and give them a chance to come and sit and listen to you and to talk with you and to, to share what's going on. And, um, but ultimately, that only works starting with where the power is. And, and as in any relationship, people in power have to be the ones who create, create the psychological safety to have those conversations. And that's us. And thus we get, we get um, violent protests. Yes. Right. When the when the when the people in power don't don't allow it any of right. that space. That's exactly right. And and this is when Dr. King said, you know, that that riot the riot is a language of the unheard. Mm -hmm. And this is what we're seeing right there, right now in front of us. People have been year after year, month after month, week after week. People get killed. Twelve year old boys get shot for having a toy gun in their hand. Um, women get women die. In, in prison because they had a taillight out, um, you know, uh, people die because they happen to be walking towards a police officer in the wrong way or selling individual cigarettes on the street. I mean, the, the, the level of insignificance of the crimes or the perpetrations that these people supposedly engaged in, that they are so minimal compared to the cost of their life as a result of it, that it puts it in stark relief to us. I mean, this is this was, I think, what the, the what the struck me with the Trevor Noah thing that he said so eloquently. It wasn't like I hadn't thought about it, but he said it much more eloquently than I ever could have. Which is, you know, this is not happening by accident. You know, it's not happening by mm -hmm. accident. Yeah, this is happening because people have nowhere else to go. Mm -hmm. Nothing else works. So blow the fur up yeah. and see what comes out of the other side. And that's not the case by accident. That's right. It's designed. That's exactly right. Way. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I better go. But if you want to, if you'd like to do this again, I'll do it anytime. I'd love to talk to you.
you anytime. Uh, yeah, I really do. I really enjoy our conversations because you're always, too, always very thoughtful. And um, and wicked smart. So the question, uh, thank you. praise from Caesar. The question that I was asking. That was my conversation with author, consultant, and lifelong social justice advocate Howard Ross. This has been the Peer Podcast, a production of PeerMedia.network. All rights reserved. You can find us at Apple Podcasts and on the web at PeerMedia.network. Thanks for listening.